There were few reports that would come on BBC, where, which my parents listened to all the time. Mark Tully was reporting those days. And, and BBC would always say, unidentified gunmen. Odd terrorism or the terrorists came only after 9-11. Even though we had been telling India, had been saying for the longest time that we have been dealing with the jihad here. We have been dealing with Islamic terror here. No one understood it. No one understood it till 9-11 happened. Unless you tell the world why Kashmiri Pandits left their home, mm -hmm. there is going to be no solution to this problem. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. Today, we have a special episode of That's So Hindu. The reason for this is that today marks the 30th anniversary of what would become an ethnic cleansing of the Hindu population of Kashmir, the Kashmiri Pundits. If you go to the HAF website, www.hafsite.org, right there in the rotator at the top of the page, you can find a link to some of this tragic history. What we have for you is a conversation between HAF Executive Director and Co-Founder Suhag Shukla and Sunanda Vishist, giving us a first-hand account of the tragic events of three decades ago. Fair warning, some of the events she describes are pretty violently graphic and disturbing. As hard as it may be to hear, this is an important story to be shared. Her passion for politics, current events, and foreign policy deeply informed today's guest's work as a writer, columnist, and political commentator. I'm pleased to have Sunanda Vashish, the co-founder of Mindmakers, a new age media company established in 2015 on our podcast, That's So Hindu. I met Sunanda online a few years ago when we had a conversation on the Mind Makers blog about the Hindu American Foundation's textbook reform work in California. We finally met face to face in Houston in 2019, where we got to spend the day together talking to major media outlets from India about India's historic abrogation of Articles 370 and 35A and our hopes for the promise of democracy and equal protection that the move holds. Most recently, Sunanda made international headlines with her heart-wrenching testimony about the human rights atrocities faced by Kashmiri Hindus and their cleansing from their ancestral homeland at a U.S. congressional hearing held by the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission. Today, we'll continue on that topic but in a slightly different direction. January 19th is Kashmir Exodus Day, a day that commemorates events that led to unimaginable devastation faced by the indigenous Hindus of Kashmir. While Hindus in the region had endured a violent Pakistan-sponsored insurgency and campaign of targeted killings, rape, threats, and destruction of properties and religious sites spanned over many years, Events on January 19, 1990 reached a fevered pitch and culminated in mass panic and the forced displacement of nearly 95% or more of Kashmir's Hindu population. Sunanda, a Kashmir pundit, was there in the mid to late 80s and 90s and managed to escape the horrors. Unfortunately, many of her community did not. Welcome, Sunanda. Hi, Suhang. Thank you for having me on the show. The, the name is pretty interesting. <laughs> Thanks. You know, oftentimes at HAF, we have these really interesting conversations and there comes a point where there's this kind of unspoken understanding yes. and inevitably one of us says, 
oh my gosh, that's so Hindu. And so <laughs> we thought that would be a, a good topic and, and one that could um, at oh, least... I love the name. I love the name. It, it is, <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you millennials, did. Millennials catch on to it. Exactly. Exactly. And now, you know, the topics that we are going to cover on the podcast are going to be a wide range of things. And some will be light, but some are going to be a little bit more heavy like today's, but they're equally important to discuss. So, you know, given your background, and I know that many people um, have heard your story, but for our audience, I wanted to maybe start with you having described the life that you led in Kashmir. Like, what do you remember about life in Kashmir prior to the 80s and 90s? Where did you live? Who were your friends? And what was life like for the average Kashmiri? I grew up and I was born in Kashmir and I grew up in, uh, I was born in Srinagar and then my, my parents, my, my dad, he was a mathematics professor. So he was posted in a small town, which uh, you probably hear quite a bit in terms of everything that's going on Anantanag. My mom accompanied him and they they built a small universe, if you will, newlywed couple. They built a small universe for themselves in a place called Verinag, mm-hmm. which is where the origin of River Vitasta is, River Jehilam. That's where uh, Jehilam originates. In that small one village, you know, they just found, uh, they wanted to live there for a little bit. I, I, I guess it was uh, just one of those things for my parents. Sounds idyllic. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it was, it was that. So, so I was born in Srinagar and then my mom as a baby took me there. And uh, uh, it was interesting because it was such a remote place place that there were no schools. There were no English medium schools in that place. And my parents were worried about me. And, you know, once I would start, uh, once I would need um, official formal education, they didn't know what to do. And the option was coming back to Srinagar to our house, or my parents thought of of another brilliant idea. They said, well, if there is no school here, my mom said, then why don't I start a school? Ah. So this place, Verinag, if you look in the map, it was and still continues to be an army base. And this base was one of those uh, few bases in army bases in Kashmir where um, army officers and army men, they could actually bring their families. So they used to live there with their families. So there was this whole base there and they were also worried because they had no place to teach their children. So they would invariably not be able to bring their families if they had school going children. So my mom thought of this plan and she said, well, then why do I not start a school? Because the only school that was run there was a Jamia Milia school run by Jamia uh, Jamaat Islami. Sure. And it was not an English medium school and it was non, non-denominational, uh, as the name suggests. 
So my mother started a school and that's, I was among the first students and those students from the army base, they all, they jumped over the idea and they all came. My parents devised a curriculum sitting up all nights. I don't remember this, of course, but I've been told stories. They devised <laughs> a curriculum and they, they just, my mother went from door to door going into that village and requesting people to send their children. The fee was nominal, basically nothing, mm-hmm. but they devised a uniform and a curriculum. And lo and behold, we had a school called Green Hill Public School. And this is where I started my education with my mother and few six or seven teachers who were my who were my mom's friends who she had made in that village and were educated women. And um, she started a school. So it's I think, I think today they would call your mom a mompreneur. Yes. Um, you know. <laughs> yes. She did not know. And I always say this, that not every superhero wears a cape. She right. did not know what she was doing and a huge impact it was making in a place where um, English education had not even stepped in. And what is interesting, Suhag, is about the reason I told you this story is why it is fascinating. And it's not because any one of us planned it that way. I, even though I was in a remote village in Kashmir, I came into contact with the rest of the India in a way because there were army people who were from all over India. Right, right. I had a very cosmopolitan upbringing in that little, small, tiny hamlet. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how that happened, but it did. So I picked up all languages. I was speaking, people ask me, when did you learn Hindi? And when, when did you learn? I, I, I was, my parents, of course, spoke Kashmiri, but I, I, I remember, I, I grew up talking English, Hindi and Kashmiri, all three at the same time, which is unbelievable for uh, American kids here. Uh, to speak oh, yeah. Languages <laughs> at the same time, but I did. That's how we were raised. And my friends were from everywhere, from Arunachal Pradesh to Chennai, because this was just a small microcosm of India in that small village. And that's how, that's where it all began. And then we moved um, all good things don't last. Uh, right. <clears throat> my um, father got unwell and uh, we had to move back to our home in um, Srinagar. And my mother had to leave the school. She left it in good hands, but, and we'll come back to this later. Um, we have, and now we know that the school has been taken over by Jamaat Islami again, another school that has been taken over and the complete vision that she has, has been changed, has now become an Islamic school. But that's different. So from that small hamlet, I moved to Srinagar. And from there in Srinagar, I went to army school. Again, I have this army connection. Right. So I army public school there because my mother wanted a CBSE education for me, which means that she did not want me to study in the state board. She wanted me to be um, competitive in rest of India as well. So, um, so there was this, um, uh, the way I can explain it to American audience is that the curriculum was same as rest of India, as in it was a centrally devised curriculum, not just the state curriculum. So uh, therefore, I went to Army Public School where I studied um, for, I think, about two or three years. And then 89, 90, the terrorism hit and we had to pack our bags and leave with only one shirt on our back. So, so just going back to your move to Srinagar, give me an idea. How old were you? Um, 
you were maybe in your teens by that time or when we had to leave when you moved uh, back you know f- back to eight, eight years old seven seven oh, or eight, eight years old okay yeah. okay and and so what the, the the choice that your parents made in kind of going with something that had a a school that had a national curriculum i suppose it's maybe akin to the international baccalaureate right it provides you a right. pathway yeah. Um, to other opportunity, I suppose, right. uh, as you got older. Yes. What would the difference be to go to other colleges and schools, uh, maybe in Delhi or anywhere else? So um, that's how um, I, uh, I think that was the plan. Got it. So, you know, you were a young girl in, in 89, and I think we're kind of close to one another in 89. And, you know, as I have been working um, in this area of, of human rights um, now for the past 16, 17 years, it, it boggles my mind that in 89, I was a carefree college student. And we'll talk a little bit about media coverage today, but even then, it was so, this, this whole issue just lacked any international coverage. And I was just, you know, as, as I've been working, um, especially in the past couple of weeks on the 30th um, anniversary or, or commemoration of Kashmir Exodus Day, I, I just am kind of overcome sometimes with a sense of guilt that so much suffering was happening. And, um, and it wasn't it, it isn't just international coverage. So how it was national coverage, right? We did not get any national coverage. So to give you a sense of perspective, it's very important to understand, we forget. We're talking about late 89, 90. Mm-hmm. There was only state-run television. ZTV, which was the first um, uh, public, uh, private television company to come into being, came only much later, I think 93 or 94, if I'm not mistaken. But 89, 90, you only had state-run television. You only had state-run radio. You did not have, media had not been open to uh, private players. There was no social media. There was no way to express. There was no way to tell your story to the world. So you only heard what the state told you, right? Right. And uh, there were few reports that would come on BBC Mm-hmm. Were, which my parents listened to all the time. Mark Tully was reporting those days and many other people would report and BBC would always say, and I don't know if they have updated it. I don't think they have updated it still, but they still, now that uh, after 9-11, they, they know what Islamic terror is, um, but somehow they still understand it only in the Western continent. They do not understand that this is what happened in India as well. They will still say unidentified gunmen. Right. This has been their style guide forever. They would say one after one, Kashmiri Pandit was dying at the hands of the, you know, the bullets of Islamic terrorists. And yet the word terrorist or even the word militant came much later, which is such a mild word for a terrorist. BBC would say unidentified gunmen. It was almost as if they had picked up a gun from a grocery store and (laughs) unidentified gunmen. No one knows what that meant. In India, they would say militants or extremists. Mm -hmm. The word terrorism or the 
terrorists came only after 9-11, even though we had been telling India, had been saying for the longest time that we have been dealing with the jihad here, we have been dealing with Islamic terror here, no one understood it. No one understood it till 9-11 happened. And as luck would have it, and I don't know what it is about me, 9-11, I was in the United States. Huh. I saw that happen in front of me. Right. The first thing, my mother called me from India, and the first thing she told me was, they have followed you there. Oh, and that's God. when I had written, Globe, uh, the piece is still available, I had written um, Global Jihad Network. Right, right. That was the point that I had, you know, that, uh, you know, that was the term I had coined at that time because people were not able to put this together, that this is a global jihad network right. and whatever is happening in Paris, what is happening in Mumbai, what is happening in Kashmir, what is happening in United States, what happened in New York on that day, it's all connected. But at that time, no one was able to. Now it's very easy for a lot of us to say this. But at that time, no one, no one knew um, this was all connected. Right. So, so you're a young girl, but you know, today as mothers, we know that our children are always listening, even when they look like they're not. <laughs> so, when you know, when you were a child. What were some of the things that you were hearing or what were the, some of the things that you were witnessing that were kind of the first signs that something was changing? Um, I, I have said this and it's kind of dark humor, but I say that when children are learning vocabulary, I mean, uh, here and they're talking about uh, chocolates and ice creams, I was learning how to say and write Mujahideen. I was learning to write and say, um, uh, you know, terrorism. I was learning to say, because, you know, all these Mujahideen that come from Afghanistan, I was learning the route they had taken from Afghanistan to Kashmir, Afghanistan to Pakistan to Kashmir. So I was picking this up. I come from a very politically aware family. So my parents were constantly talking about this. And uh, not just because they were interested in it from a political point of view, but for them, it was survival also. They were trying to, my father passed away in 86. So it was just my mom at that point and my other extended family. Uh, so they were, uh, you know, constantly talking about what next, what do we do? And the first instance where I felt that something was not wrong, right, and first instance which I personally experienced about being a minority in a, in a Islamic majority, and it's funny because in India, as an Indian, as a Hindu, you never notice this, and we very rarely, even from other Hindus, get that sympathy is, because everyone thinks of Hindus in India as majority. Right. But we're the only outliers, Kashmiri Pandits, who are not a majority in Hindu. In fact, we are a very small micro minority. And so somehow, it, you know, uh, in the international audience, this does not get registered. 
very much. When I say that I belong to a micro minority, it's just because I'm a Hindu. So it doesn't get registered. But I just want to tell people that Kashmiri pundits over the period of systematic brutalities from 14th century had been reduced from 100% to about 5 to 6% in 89 and from there to 1% now. I mean, you know, people talk about genocides and people talk about things. I, I don't know of a bigger genocide than this. I mean, from 100% population, you go to 1% now. I mean, uh, what are we talking about? Uh, but anyway, going back, when I first, when I first personally noticed was uh, these things used to happen. We were always conscious of being Hindus there. And um, so cricket, as you know, is, is, very, is a very popular game in India and people follow it uh, with passion. It's almost second religion, as they often joke. So the majority population there obviously was not never supporting India when India played against any country, but especially when it played against Pakistan, there were um, attacks on Hindu families, as in if Gavaskar was playing those days, if he made a six and uh, suddenly they would, they would just go out and they would slap a Hindu boy, just, just, just for no reason. Or they would, or if uh, Pakistan won, they would, or if India lost to any other country, there would be um, fireworks in mm. front of Hindu homes, just to prove a point. Right. So right. I remember there was, must have been a game going on, and I was very young, in my Srinagar house, my mother sent me to buy milk. And the way this was, the milk the lady who sold milk was right next to our house. So it was literally walking across the road. Right. So I, she sent me with a bucket and a little bucket and I sent with, with money and she sort of told her from the window uh, that, you know, I'm sending my daughter, give her this milk. And, you know, this, this is how, you know, things used to work in old Kashmir. Right. People will remember this. I mean, not your younger generation, but the older people who've lived in India will remember this. So I, I just walked to her and her son who was little older than me, he was there and he was listening to the cricket commentary on radio. That's how you listen to cricket commentary those days. And I don't know what happened. Was it Shastri or was it Gavaskar? Um, uh, some Indian cricketer, you know, he hit the ball for the six. This boy got so enraged that there was another Hindu boy who was just walking down the street. He went and he slapped him in front of me. And there we are, three kids, because he was just an adolescent too. And the other boy was an adolescent. I was younger. And so three of us, we're watching this, we're witnessing this scene that somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in the world, a cricket ball was hit for six. And there is this Hindu boy getting slapped right. for no reason. Huh. And this boy, who must have been 13 or 14 at that time, this Hindu boy, he was so... He was humiliated and more so because I saw it. Right. And he just turned red. I still remember that face of how he turned oh. red and he ran to his house. And this boy just sat there and then his mom came, she gave me milk and we went. But I still remember this scene and I have never watched cricket after that. I hate cricket. And I, in fact, I wrote a piece in DNA, which became viral after that, why I hate cricket. And I had explained that this is why I hate cricket, because cricket for a Kashmiri Hindu is not just a game. 
this is what we had witnessed. So these were small things that we sort of noticed over the period of time. And my parents, of course, noticed a lot more. Suddenly there were things that young men were disappearing. And we would go and ask them what happened. And they would say, where did so-and-so go? And they would say, oh, they went uh, across. I mean, in Kashmiri, they would say that they, they went across the border, uh, across, or they crossed, what they meant was that they crossed the border. Right. So what was happening at that time in late 88, in beginning 88 and 89 was that they were going to be okay for training. They were getting trained at that time. JKLF was the main um, terrorist body at that point. And um, so led by Yasin Malik and all these people. So they were getting trained. So suddenly these young boys were disappearing. I have no idea what India's intelligence was those days, but they clearly did not know what we knew. um, And suddenly then one day systematic killings, the way terrorism was announced in Kashmir, and it's very important that people understand this, the way terrorism was announced or declared, the way jihad was declared in Kashmir was in, in September of 89, when the tallest Kashmiri Pandit, Pandit Tikalal Taplu was shot dead, a lawyer in his yeah. 50s was shot dead outside. He was, I think he was going from work, to, from his home to work and he was shot dead. The reason he was shot dead was because he was a very vocal lawyer. He was also associated with, um, I think he was an office bearer of uh, BJP in um, Kashmir and um, the state unit and he died and his last words were Bharat Mata Jai, hail to Mother India. Mm. That was the day, that, that was how terrorism or jihad was announced in Kashmir by killing the tallest and the most vocal Kashmiri leader and uh, his killing sent shivers across the spine, but no one knew what was happening. We still did not know what was happening. Everyone thought that maybe it's just one killing, you know, and maybe it was something. There was, no one was, no one was uh, in any way, no one was finding out what was going on. There was no government at that time. That was the central government. If you remember 89, 90, those who follow Indian politics will know that in 89, 90, the Indian government, this, this was the time of coalition governments and you right. know, governments were falling. And, um, you know, uh, we used to joke that the um, 89 and 90 and 91, um, till um, Narsibarao came, it, it was just a mess in um, uh, central uh, government, the federal government, and in Kashmir. And uh, then the local geopolitics, because um, USSR, erstwhile USSR, had withdrawn right, from, from Afghanistan. So all these Mujahideen had nowhere to go. And then Kashmir was treated as what I have always said, first laboratory of jihad. But mm. somehow everyone missed the... Mm, So, you know, I spent the better part of um, the past week or so compiling from a variety of sources the names that are publicly available of Kashmiri Hindus and Sikhs who were targeted and killed by militants. And the the very uh, first name is is who you just spoke about, who who was a local hero. Um, And so it was a very intentional and visible 
a person um, who is, you know, obviously specifically targeted. Yeah. Every detail of, of compiling this list has been horrifying. Um, as you read about men and women who were kidnapped or tortured, women gang raped and killed. But what I have really found disturbing in, in so many of these stories is the relationship that existed between victims and killers. You know, you read incidents of someone getting killed by a former colleague, a nurse being killed by former patients, uh, by neighbors and friends. It so, was, it was you know, what kind of in that It was a betrayal in backyard. And this is one reason why, uh, you know, I have for the longest time, even with this current dispensation that is in power in India, I have said, and through your platform, maybe I will say it yet one more time, we need a white paper on what happened in 89-90. Unless the government of India really puts a commission and finds out exactly what happened and why it happened, there will be no justice. And when there will be no justice, there will be no reconciliation ever. Unless you tell the world why Kashmiri pundits left their home, Mm -hmm. there is going to be no solution to this problem. And successive governments have shied away from this. They will never say why we left, because this is the darkest darkest phase of Kashmir where terrorists, where neighbors actually helped other, um, you know, helped terrorists to target these Hindus. And so how, let me tell you, there is so much of miscommunication that after 89, 90, after we left, a whole generation of Kashmiri Muslims is, has come about. And these people who have never even known that Hindus ever lived in the valley. They don't know this because they were born, you know, after 90. They don't know. They were born after the cleansing. They were born after the cleansing. They have no idea. These people, even a white paper would be good for these people as well who would who actually want to know what happened because everywhere it is there is so much um spoke screen around where we left what we did what happened to us that it is it is and as i keep saying you can do whatever you want but unless we know why we left and who actually help the terrorists, there will be no reconciliation. And I would imagine that many of the people are getting older, um, those firsthand witnesses. Yes. Um, and, you know, trauma, yes. as we know, can have huge mental health and physical health impact. And yes. one might be, you know, memories and the impact that it has on memories. Um, it's, it's very natural to want to put those things behind us um, when we have suffered in in the deepest way possible where our lives are at stake or the lives of loved ones are. Mm-hmm. You can only imagine that there is information that's available, but there's even probably more information that's buried mm-hmm. in the memories of people who, if we don't have those conversations soon, um, they might be lost, lost forever. forever. And we will never know. And yeah. we will never know. So, you know, according to some estimates, um, you know, 350,000 to 400,000 Kashmiri Hindus were cleansed, hundreds were killed. 
Yes. Um, several hundred Kashmiri Pandit cultural and religious sites have been dis- were destroyed or damaged um, or illegally occupied, like your 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 family's school. Yes. And you know these statistics are important, but I think very often um, statistics tend to make us numb to the real names and faces and places that were behind um, these numbers. Um, men of all ages bore the brunt of this, you know, Pakistan-sponsored insurgency. Yes. You know, if you're comfortable, can you share one or two incidents that kind of stick out in your memory that really created an atmosphere of, of fear and terror for Kashmiri pundits? The first instance is in my family on August 1st. 1990, and this was a twin shock. And um, I, as I said, I used to go to army public school in um, uh, Srinagar. Our bus was kidnapped. Thankfully, I was not in that bus, but it was one of the buses that I used to take. Um, so. So that was very close. That was something that had happened to us. And that day, my mother decided that we're not going to go to school anymore. My bus was kidnapped, but immediately, um, in fact, Jagmohan, uh, the former governor, mentions it in his book. Um, um, but thankfully, those days, because we were in, uh, because I was in army school, so we used to have an armed guard in, with the bus. So mm-hmm. he was able to route the bus and we were, um, the students were safe. And the other incident happened on the same day, on March 1st, 1990. My uncle, uh, who lived just a few miles from our house, and we had met him on February 28th. He had come over to our house. He met my mother and I, and my mother was telling him that, you know, I have, March is the time when we have exams in India. And he was telling her that I won't be able to go to school because of what is happening and she has exams to take. And he told my mother that, and I remember these prophetic words. I remember exactly where he sat, the chair he sat in our house. He said, he said, he said you know, I would have taken her to school. I take the official, uh, he was um, uh, private secretary to the governor at that time, Governor Jagmohan. Uh-huh. And his name was, and his name is in the records. If you've been doing it, you would have found his name was uh, Mr. P. N. Handu. He had come yes. over and he, he, so he said, you know, I would have taken her to school, but you know, I go in this arm um, um, government vehicle and those are never safe. So I would, I would just keep her home. He told my mom. And uh, on March 1st, he was shot dead by the terrorists in the same vehicle, the, his driver, the trusted driver, had let out the details to the terrorists. And his son, uh, who lives here now, thinks that it was Bittakarate, one of the dreaded terrorists, who, by the way, is in jail right now, not for killing of Kashmiri Pandits, which he has already acknowledged himself in on television interview. On camera, that's right. I yeah, see. on camera. But he is in jail for some alleged funds, um, you know, misuse of funds. <laughs> Black humor at its worst. But anyway, he's, <laughs> so um, he's the one who shot bullet, but point blank when he was coming to sit in his 
jeep or car. Um, he had already been identified by his own driver and he was shot dead and he was he uh, lost his life right there. And his son came and there was no way, there were no phones, there was no communication. So he ran and he came to tell my mother because his wife, mother was there, uh, Mr. Hindu's wife was there. So he came to, to inform his relatives and we were one of them. He came to tell my mother. My mother sent me to the neighbor's house and she ran to help them. And she still remembers his dead body and how they, I mean, helped the blood soaked body and how there were announcements made in the nearby mosque that anybody who helps this family will meet the same fate as this man. So no one came and these, obviously he was, he was taken to the hospital, I think, but he was dead. And his family also left pretty soon, but so this was very close. This was yeah. extremely close. I remember my mother's white face when she came she was expressionless for, I think, next one year. She was wow. walking and talking like a dead person. I mean, it was there was no expressions on her face because the fear had hit close and they were hitless. My her brother, my mom's brother, youngest brother, she had only one brother, his name was put on a hit list. Hmm. And it was put uh, in the public square and he was hiding from, um, you know, pillar to post. And one day he came late and I remember my mother and her sisters, they went everywhere looking for him and we thought he had been, he had been killed. So um, things like that had started happening. And um, it was a time that it's very painful to go back into those days again, but it's important that we do it again and again and again for the sake of people who don't know, because we need to document this. Right. I mean, it's the only way to ensure that history yes. doesn't repeat yes. itself. But those were some of the, you know, the, the way close that I saw, uh, you know, that, that hit home. And obviously one heard about BK Ganju, who is also, uh, my, my family knew him and I named him in the testimony as well, um, because that was just such brutal ISIS style killing where he was hiding and the terrorists came and asked his wife about his whereabouts. And she said, I don't know. And they left and the neighbors called them and they said, he's hiding. Right in the right. attic, in a rice container. Yeah. And they came and they pumped the bullets into his body and forced the wife to eat the blood-soaked rice. I mean, these are, I don't know how much more brutal ISIS has been than this. And that's why I say that, you know, I'm glad people now understand what this terrorism has done and also the global jihad network, the term I use again and again, and I repeat it again and again, please understand the dots because right. this is where it is. This is no war for self-determination. If it was a war for self-determination, it did not need to be announced from the mosques on 19th January. Why was this war of self, if it was indeed a war of self-determination, why were the... Uh, you know, loudspeakers blaring from the mosques on 19th January. Why were we told on 19th January through the slogans, Yahan kya chalega nizame Mustafa? I mean, those are the slogans that still I hear in my uh, mind. You know, I, I still hear them when I'm alone. 
right. or things like that we only want kashmir with um hindu men, um, women and without hindu men or now now it's very fashionable to say azadi azadi everywhere we hear that but right. people don't understand the genesis of azadi and i really do want to let you know sohag that a lot of people are saying that these azadi slogans are, have come from some feminist movement in pakistan in 92 or 93 that is wrong azadi slogans were first heard in 89 90 in kashmiri in kashmir right. where it was said azadi ka matlab kya la ilaha illallah that's what was said What's frustrating in all of this is that you have American lawmakers or you know so-called progressive activists who fail to acknowledge or want to ignore the fact that self-determination or any sense of of some movement that's driven by this you know impulse of self-determination is not to create democracy. No. is to create a theocracy yes. and and clearly the slogans that you've talked about put light to that that yes. this is what the intent was yes. so how can we on the one hand enjoying freedom of speech and and freedom to assemble under democracy then just put blinders to what's really going on i think that's been the most deeply frustrating part of of trying to seek allies in in putting pressure for for justice and support for india in in what it's trying to do in the region to just bring peace stability and and you know reinstate democracy so a lot of these people they go to the american lawmakers and they say that this is a war for self determination because that is what that's how the smoke screen is built you know um, and i put it in courts the liberals they go and they liberals and courts of course they they uh, sort of do the whitewashing for it or they give it the intellectual heft by mm-hmm. using these words about self determination and about choosing your own life my question to all of them is that why did the self determination have to be announced with the ethnic cleansing of right. local of aborigines we were just 5% of the population why was it important to announce your self determination by ethnic cleansing of kashmiri hindus it was needed because the final goal was to create an islamic state which is what indian government did india didn't know sovereign country will allow and india government did not allow and which is the frustration the real frustration there is that why has this islamic kingdom not been islamic state not been allowed the well, reason why we were thrown out was that it needed to be that right exactly and and as a liberal uh what about freedom yeah what about equality yeah. what about you know all citizens of a country enjoying all the same rights yes. where is that uh part of the equation yeah. in in any of the outrage that that yeah. we've been seeing and also another thing that you will often hear is that oh the only kashmiri pandits who were killed were people who worked for who were the agents of the state that's right. a lie that's a big fat lie not everyone who was employed by the government of india or the government of jammu and kashmir was i mean no one was a 
spy or an agent for the government of India. I mean, in a sense, yes, we all were because we were the only ones who were speaking about India and Kashmir. We were the only ones who were holding the Indian flag and that's what we were punished for. There is right. no question about that. But to say that they were killed because they were agents, I mean, is is just... is 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 such a hard thing. It's such a hard pill to swallow. Girija Tikku, who I have mentioned again and again, I mentioned in the hearing also, I mean, a laboratory nurse, I mean, and she had to be cut into two halves because she was a quote-unquote agent. Agent of who? I mean, this is, uh, it's a blot. Kashmir Pandit Exodus is a blot on the secular history of India. India cannot call itself a secular country till it washes away this blot. Absolutely. I mean, you know, with the the compilation of the names that I've been working on, I mean, you have shopkeepers, you have professors, you have drivers, um, you have uh, constables, you know, certainly in hundreds. So, you know, this idea that the state had employed, you know, hundreds of agents. And they, <laughs> if only they were, it was that organized back then to be able to keep track and have some way of even discerning whatever information they or, were. Or uh, the governor, Jagmohan, who had not, who was not even in Kashmir on 19th January, somehow planned this exodus and told us to leave our 5,000 year old homes. <laughs> right. And this is a time when there was no social media, there is a time when there was no. Telephones also. I mean, very few families had those corded phones. There was no cell phones or anything. There was no internet, for God's sake. I mean, I don't understand how they say that Jagmohan planned this whole thing. And he was not even in Kashmir, but, you know, he planned to uh, uh, sort of plan this exodus, which which is all nonsense. And the exodus happened, although... A lot of people left after 19th January, after that dark night, but it continued. my own family continued to be there till August. So it was clearly not that everyone left right away. We kept trickling and then by August, it had become completely, you know, impossible for us to live there. That's when we left. So uh, that's also, again, another lie. What hurts Suhag is, of course, that we have been thrown out of our homes. This ethnic cleansing happened. What also hurts is the smokescreen that has been built around it, the lies that have been built around it, the truth that is never told, the facts that are never told. It's been 30 years. I I mean, all these people, they're asking for justice. I don't even ask for justice. I'm asking for facts. I'm asking for truth. I'm right. saying that if you want reconciliation, let's have the courage to speak the truth. This country had the, had the guts and the courage to speak about truth about slavery. Yeah. This country had the guts and the courage to talk about and still do of what happened to, um, uh, you know, aborigines, Indian Americans, I mean, American Indians. Why are we not, why in India do we not have the courage to this day to speak about, to speak the truth about what happened in the only ethnic cleansing India has seen post-independence? And, and what's, what's problematic is that, of course, India needs to speak up for it, but 
I think that the media overall, uh, Indian media is maybe a little bit better in at least acknowledging um, certain certain facts. But now, overall, you know, we just in the month after um, August fifth abrogation of Articles three seventy and thirty five A, there were about one hundred and thirty articles that were written um, by the New York Times, by BBC, by NPR, CNN, and, and Washington Post. There was not a single mention of the cleansing of Kashmiri pundits, and only four mentioned that Hindus even existed in the region. So if we, you know, if the media does not take its responsibility um, seriously in India, um, or at least those journalists that are working as as the the local partners to some of the international media that's trying to cover, um, we're going to just continue to obscure uh, a historical a historical record and and a travesty um, that I think people today still continue to face. I mean, we haven't even talked about the thousands of, of Kashmiri pundits. What's who are still in refugee camps. Refugee camps, yes. You know, there's a, you're, you're amongst those who have um, been able to rebuild. Yes, um, but a lot of us haven't. Right. And, um, and, even, and even in rebuilding, I would imagine that there are a lot of struggles still in terms of... Of course, of uh, course. I mean, it, my, my, my grandparents died with the name Kashmir on their lips. Mm-hmm. I mean, my grandfather died right after the um, exodus and I talk about him often and he just, he, because the life for Kashmiri Hindus once we were, we came out of Kashmir was not easy either. It was extremely difficult. I mean, we rebuilding your lives. I mean, from nothing, from literally nothing, and especially for our parents' generation because we were young and we we didn't have. We were just so this generation, my parents' generation. Now they had their parents to look after and they had their children to look after. So this was a sandwich generation. This right. generation completely just got damaged in a way that is. Not even um, I, I can't even begin to tell you how how hard it was for them providing for them and the generation before them, their parents, my grandparents' generation, they died with not even understanding what had happened to them. Right. My grandfather was almost seventy-one years old at that time, and he was he lost his mind. He right. kept thinking that you know he, he would have nightmares and he would run around like a madman because he had just you know he had witnessed what no human being should witness and this is not just my grandfather's story this is the father of all this is a story of all men and all women of his generation my grandmother who is in Jammu now, she's still, all she says when I call her and it's hot in Jammu, she always says that I want to drink the water from my own faucet in Kashmir. That's what she misses. Of course. Because she said that water never needed to be refrigerated. I want to drink the water from the, my faucet, kitchen faucet in my home. I mean, these stories are getting lost. These people, their dreams, their aspirations, their lives have been destroyed. When is the world going to acknowledge this? 
Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Before you go, HAF is helping organize candlelight vigils across the United States today, January 19th, 2020, to commemorate the Kashmiri Pundit Exodus. Go to www.hafsite.org, navigate to the events page to find a vigil to attend near you. Thank you.